welcome to the Melanation Healing Project podcast in collaboration with Toledo Moms for Social Justice. I am Dyshell Parker, and I'm your moderator for episode two, titled Race, Religion, and Power. What's the problem and what's the solution? I am so honored to introduce our host, Erin Schoen Marsh, journalist and co-founder of Toledo Moms for Social Justice. Erin, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Awesome sauce. All right. <laughs> and we also have Tejia Wad, published author and founder of Melanation Healing Project. Tejia, thank you for being here, love. I am glad to be here, sweetie. All right. And we are beyond excited to introduce our guest, Ben Hine, pastor and former guest panelist featured on the Oprah Conversation on Apple TV with Abram X. Kendi. Pastor Ben, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. I just want to inform our viewers that Pastor Ben Hine grew up in the D.C. metro area and received his BA in computer science from James Madison University. After becoming a Christian in 2010, Ben felt called to full-time ministry and earned his seminary degree in 2012 from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He then continued on with his studies, graduating in 2017 with a Master's of Divinity. Ben believes that only by fully understanding the beliefs and views of non-Christians will we be able to successfully present the gospel in this secular age. I want to start off um, just by asking you, Pastor Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you fell into the work of racial healing and reconciliation? Yeah, well, I just want to say um, thanks, thanks again for having me and uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. Uh, I love the work that you all are doing uh, with this podcast, with Melanation, uh, with the Toledo Moms Group. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I really believe in the work that you all are doing. Um, so, yeah, how did I get into this work? Um, well, I, um, I, I became a Christian as an adult. And um, I was, you know, I was exposed to Christianity growing up. Um, more so um, what I was exposed to, I, I was raised in what I would say was a a progressive household. Uh, so, you know, where we talked about human rights and equality and helping those in need and, and things like that. And I, I think those are the values that I more internalized uh, growing up, not necessarily anything that was uh, particularly religious. Um, and so I, I grew up in an environment where, you know, I thought like, of course, you know, I'm not racist. And of course I, I care about, you know, equality and justice and fairness. And so I would have thought like, yeah, you know, I'm a good person. I care about those things. And uh, those things are bad. Um, but I also, you know, with that, uh, received the common colorblind narrative. So um, I, I was raised to, to, you know, with, you don't see color, right? Like, it's a good thing to say that you don't see color. Um, and so that was like, the highest value was like, kind of getting to this place of saying you don't see color. And so not only that, but I think there's also the colorblind narrative you receive in schooling and your history classes which basically says like you know we are beyond we are beyond racism now like racism is like a small thing it yeah. only exists yeah mm -hmm. it, it exists in like really small pockets and you might still find like you know some people driving around with confederate flags and stuff like that but other than that like racism isn't an issue anymore you know because we had we had abraham lincoln and we had martin luther king so like <laughs> we're all good now you know like let's all like move on and kumbaya and so i think <laughs> 
because of that, I didn't really have the tools or the vocabulary um, to address these issues. Um, so then uh, coming into my mid-20s, that was really uh, my primary narrative was colorblind, thinking that we were kind of past, you know, um, racism in this country. And then I would say there were like several factors in my mid-20s and now I'm, you know, approaching my mid-30s um, that sort of led me more directly into this work of racial healing and reconciliation. So I'll just try and name a couple of these real brief. Um, you know, becoming a Christian as an adult, I, I would say I, I have to start there because prior to that, I didn't think I didn't see any of these issues. And so I really think that God softened my heart uh, to be ready to receive um, to receive and become aware of racial injustice um, in our society. So uh, starting there and then uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I have always felt like going into ministry that I wanted to help equip Christians specifically to address the cultural world around them, uh, to address issues in our culture with hope and with a winsome spirit and with uniquely Christian answers um, to problems we face. And so I think as systemic racial issues became more you know, on the news and we were seeing the videos on social media and people have their smartphones so they can record things and, and things are becoming like, you know, kind of in our face. I think I was sort of like primed to maybe care about these issues. But once again, I didn't, I didn't have the tools that I needed. And so I realized that as I saw the protests all around me, I saw the news around me, like I didn't have the tools or the knowledge to really engage on these issues. And so I was starting to have a lot of like light bulb moments. Uh, so for example, um, you know, I'm in seminary and my seminary uh, training, it was predominantly white. Uh, there, there was some diversity and I don't want to underplay the diversity there, but I'd always just like accepted that as normal. Um, but now I was starting to question it. Like, why, why is this a predominantly white space? And what does that mean? And what are the issues behind that? Yes. Uh, but I think the real light bulb moment for me was um, maybe five or six years ago, uh, reading Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. And in that letter where he um, addresses the white moderate and he says something to the effect of, you know, that he, he doesn't think the biggest problem for racial justice, it's not the KKK, uh, it's the white moderate who says, like, I agree with you on justice, but like, uh, let's not make anyone uncomfortable. Let's not do anything crazy. Like, let's just do it in a timing that works for everybody. And I think I realized reading that letter, like, I'm the white moderate, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that was like that, like that he's describing me. And so like, I'm the problem. And so once I read that and had that light bulb moment uh, from there, it's just been like a snowball that's picked up speed, you know, over the last five or six years uh, to really um, be pursuing racial justice much more intentionally. And so I would say like, that's super long story in a nutshell of how I kind of fell into this work. So. Wow. Wow. Um, okay, Pastor Ben, okay, before I get into my question with you, I just want to let you know that because my husband is a bit of a fan, he enjoyed the conversation you and him had the first time we met. He's not hosting, but he is uh, in here listening. And if he has something to say, you know, we've given him uh, that, <laughs> you know, if you want to have, if he has an opinion or something, we, we, we've given him that freedom, sure. okay? So. Sure. I didn't want to leave you alone with all the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> hey now. Appreciate it, brother. We're, we're holding it down. We're holding it down. Oh, okay, so getting into my question, um, you were on a brand new talk show, The Oprah Conversation, and it streamed on Apple TV this past summer. 
and it explored the topic of race in America. And I thought it was interesting how Oprah seemed surprised to have, you know, someone on her show who was willing to give a religious perspective on race, which was you. In fact, I think this was many people's reaction, as was mine, you know, to see a white evangelical Christian give his perspective on race issues, because that's typically a topic that is not um, explored in, in that area um, with, you know, with mm -hmm. uh, evangelical Christians. So why do you think this may be uncommon? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and if I can just uh, tell a, a quick uh, funny story here, and I'll, I'll let you all draw your own conclusions, but I'm pretty sure uh, I was the first, um, you know, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I'm pretty sure I was the first Presbyterian pastor on her show uh, since Mr. Rogers, who was also a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> I didn't so know that. I'll let you draw your own conclusions um, about that. <laughs> am, I, am I the modern Mr. Rogers? I don't know. Like only the fans... Only the fans can decide that. Um, but uh, um, the Lord opened that door for me to be um, uh, to be on that show. And yeah, I think it was a surprise uh, to Oprah. I think it was a surprise to maybe even some of the producers who interviewed me for that show. And evangelicals in the United States do not have a great track record on engaging racial issues. So for most of the history of the white church in the United States, white Christians have either been silent and complicit on issues of racial justice, or they have openly argued for racist views. So I think a great history of this is in um, Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise, which I think is a great book, uh, very short and to the point on some of these things. Christians know that history and they've been reluctant to front it because of the shame that it brings. I think there's a lot of shame um, to look, to turn around and acknowledge these things in even our near recent um, you know, Christian history and it makes us uncomfortable. So um, Christians don't have a great track record. We don't have a great response by and large today. Uh, and so when this shame and reluctance to confront our history is combined with the present biases or prejudice that we have, I think by and large, the white evangelical response to racial injustice today is, uh, to put it gently, it's lacking. Uh, I, I would, you know, there's stronger words I could use, but I would say it's lacking. And, you know, a great, another great study, by the way, I'm a huge book nerd. So <laughs> I'm going to be plugging like lots of books, I think, as we go. And probably in the conclusion, I'll probably plug some more books. Um, from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, there's a great study and discussion of the white evangelical response to racism in a book titled um, Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Mm -hmm. And what they show in that study, one of, the, one of the many things they show in that study, is that the most common perspective for white evangelicals today is that racism is an individual issue in poor relationships, uh, but white evangelicals don't have the categories to think in systemic terms yeah. or to think that racism could be embedded into the very fabric of our society and our institutions. And so the white evangelical response today is just, um, you know, another word could be like, it's anemic. It's just not, it's not healthy. It's not full. It's not robust. It's not great. And I think many people know that, whether it's through news stories or through their own relationships with white evangelicals, um, that artist response isn't great. And so, and if I could just even conclude with one, one more point, it's fairly obvious. There's plenty of studies on this. Like, I think a lot of white evangelicals still hold some pretty strong racist views today um, as well. And I mean, you're seeing that with, there's a lot of studies, for example, 
um, that of all the demographics in our country, white evangelicals are the most likely to believe the conspiracy theories today. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, there, you know, there was a new study that just came out a couple of days ago that it's like something like 70% of um, white evangelicals blame Black Lives Matter for the, the Capitol protest in, in January, thinking that like they incited it, not not, you know, like white nationalists. And so like stuff like that, it's just like, okay, uh, by and large, the white evangelical response and views on racial injustice in our country. I don't mean to interject, Ben, but I just appreciate you throwing out the numbers and the facts because um, we can all have our own opinions. But when, when you look at the hardcore evidence and the numbers, you really have to face a different kind of truth rather than your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. The data is there. If you, if you want to look for it, the data is there, mm-hmm. you know. So. Yeah. And going before we hit our next question, um, your point about white moderates, I think that now nowadays we call them, you know, the nice white people. Right. Like the people who are like, oh, I'm not racist, but also I don't want to speak up against racism. That kind of mm-hmm. in between. They don't want to lose their white privilege by speaking out against racism. But yet they also want to be nice, quote unquote, and, you know, et cetera. All right. yeah. And next question. So in the episode that you were in, Professor Ibram X. Kendi, um, with him, the conversation centered around principles of anti-racism. Toward the end of your discussion with Oprah and Professor Kendi, Oprah asked each of the panelists if you all had a broader understanding of racial justice, the problems surrounding it, and what it would look like for you to be an anti-racist. Since the episode aired, how have you been thinking about these questions? How have you been working through them? What has been the response from others? Answer any or all of the above. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I think, you know, one thing that was um, hard when I was on that show was I could tell they were trying to set it up uh, like to, to say like this book was, you know, was the game changer for each of the five of us that were on that show. And I realized I kind of had to like, uh, kind of take a step back because I've been on my journey for like five or six years and I didn't want to come across as, um, you know, like ahead of anyone else or anything like that uh, because I'm, I'm not in many ways I'm not. Um, but so like that book was very profound for me and I would rec- definitely recommend reading uh, Dr. Kennedy's book, how to be an anti-racist, but I have been on this journey for, you know, a few, a few years. And so from an individual perspective, I would just say that I've been continuing on the path that I've been on, uh, you know, since being on the show uh, the show has given me some um, some opportunity to talk more like on, from a platform like something like this uh, about racism and anti-racism. And, you know, maybe we can talk about kind of what that response to the show has been uh, after this. But I've, I've been continuing on the individual side of this. Um, so getting my hands on as much research as I can to help me better understand and teach on racial issues and things like that. I've also started um, doing more group group studies and group work. So um, I've been, uh, leading, for example, a recent book study on, um, as a group on Jamar Tisby's latest book titled how to fight racism, which is a great, great book. Great to use for like a group study like that. Um, however, I think, I think a lot of the, the most needed work in racial justice today has to be done in, in groups, uh, like, you know, Melanation, like the Toledo Moms. Group uh, that it's you have. Toledo Moms and, for social justice. Just to because there's another group called Toledo Moms, and they have oh, very okay, different okay, views. All right, yes. So <laughs> okay, uh, to Toledo Moms for social Thank justice. You. Yeah, that's that's nuance that. Uh, so I think um, you know I think the groups from a group perspective, we need to be working together to confront these issues. And you know that's 
uh, I'm encouraged by the work you all are doing. But I think so since the show, I've been um, trying to be more intentional from, yeah, from a group perspective. And one thing I'm really excited about is my family's taken a step of faith uh, to move forward in, in the work of church planting, uh, which essentially means looking for a neighborhood that needs uh, where there's a need for a new church and uh, to go and start one there. And one of the things that we've been very intentional about as we're talking to potential partners, uh, potential networks, uh, potential churches that might want to partner with us, we've been very explicit about our desire uh, to address racial injustice, not just in the church, but in the community that we're a part of. And so I think that has been a really exciting opportunity to really start getting the ball moving uh, from our end on being more intentional about being an anti-racist and confronting racial injustice in our society. So. And that is amazing, Pastor Ben. Um, I want to ask you, um, during an interview where actor and political analyst Trevor Noah uh, made a comment about the biggest historical moments of racism um, throughout the world, he said, and paraphrase quote, um, during the biggest periods of racism in America and throughout the world, the Bible was used to justify it, end quote, paraphrased. Um, do you agree with this? And if so, wouldn't you say that's true for all religions? Yeah, great question. Um, and I'm going to say, uh, yes, I agree, but I'm going to provide a couple nuances. <laughs> all right. So uh, yes, with nuance. And so let me let me actually start with the second question on does it apply to all religions? Mm -hmm. um, so to a degree, yes. Uh, racist or ethnocentric attitudes or, you know, ethnic discrimination can be found in nearly every religion at some point in history, right? And the same can be true of secular non-religious societies, such as the 20th century communist states in China or Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, human history is filled uh, with this kind of oppression from the very beginning of our existence. So if you read um, Yuval Noah Harari's uh, best-selling book, Sapiens, mm -hmm. which has been like on the best-selling list for like six years or something crazy. Um, you know, he shows that it's likely that from the very beginning of human history, uh, when one group of humans met another group of humans, the result was conflict and mm -hmm. genocide, mm -hmm. right? Like that's just, like that's human history. Yeah. Uh, so whether religious or not, there has always been evidence of ethnic or racial injustice. And you might even say that it's the human instinct to oppress those who are outside of our group or our tribe. So, you know, uh, you could say then to, to do a degree that this is true of all religions. Um, and there would even be another example of this um, um, in the United States uh, of religions outside of Christianity fueling racist views. So you could look at, you know, you could look at the nation of Islam, right? Which twists the teaching of Islam. It's, and that's, as I want to clarify, like it's twisting the teaching of Islam uh, to say that the white man was birthed by the devil and that the white man is the cause of all evil in the world. And so I mean, you understand the reaction there, but it's, it's um, you know, it's fueling, you know, racist sentiments from a different perspective. And, but of course, that's not really the kind of racism we're, we're talking about this morning primarily. So I think to a degree, I would say, yes, it's true of all religions, but not in the same way that it's true of Christianity in the United States. Um, like in, in terms of like modern racism, what we see in the United States, uh, I wouldn't hold... Uh, other religions accountable in the same way that would hold ah, Christianity accountable. Okay. And, um, and, and, and I say that because, uh, you know, when we're talking, okay, anti-Black racism, um, African-American discrimination in our history, in our country's history, uh, you just can't blame other religions the same way that you blame Christianity. 
because primarily because Christianity has always been the dominant religion in our country. I mean, to an overwhelming degree. I mean, that's starting to change a little bit now, but you know, for the majority of our history, we've been overwhelmingly Christian. Mm -hmm. um, so while there's been other, while there's been non-religious justifications for racism, uh, you know, coming from our founding fathers, coming from scientists who argue that people from Africa were subhuman and things like that. Many of the racist views in our country's history were fueled by supposed Christian justification. And I don't know if somebody wanted to jump in. Uh, I, I do want to, I do have a second nuance I'd like to clarify real quick, but uh, I think Tasia, maybe you want to, you were raising your hand. <laughs> okay. I like what you said. I wanted to add to that, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Second nuance um, is just in regards to the Bible being used to justify um, racism in our country. I would nuance that by saying um, the Bible was misused to justify racism in our country. And let me just try and explain why really quickly. I know this isn't like a religious history podcast or anything, but I just want to clarify what I mean by that, you know, and I'm not at all disagreeing necessarily with Trevor Noah on this, but just trying to nuance, um, you know, first of all, uh, the entire social invention, the social construction of race in regards to human history, it's a relatively recent one, like the way that we're using it today. Uh, so Professor Kendi uh, gives a good history of this in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, and really showing that the term race being applied oh. to humans mm -hmm. to have a hierarchy of humans based on physical characteristics and the color of skin wasn't really happening until the 16th or 17th centuries. Okay. Right. So from there, then the ideas of race continue to be used to justify racial hierarchies and the abusive treatment of people who are lower on that hierarchy and, and so on. And there's a lot we, we could unpack there. But the point I want to make is that um, whatever racial <clears throat> justification white Christians may have made from the Bible, those ideas could not have originated with the Bible because race wasn't a, a concept that biblical authors were thinking in. Right. So so white Christians who were using the Bible to justify racism were taking a modern concept and reading it back into mm. the biblical text, which is just like a 101 error of like, you mm -hmm. don't do that. It was, it was wrong. Uh, and second, I think a full reading of scripture would show that the practice <clears throat> of chattel slavery ah. in our country had, had no legs to stand on as far as Christianity is concerned. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, which did permit a kind of slavery, which we could talk about, it was very different from American chattel slavery. Uh, so, for example, you read in the Old Testament that the Israelites were forbidden from harming foreigners. In fact, uh, harming foreigners was punishable by death if, if people of Israel harmed foreigners. Uh, they were commanded to love foreigners at, as themselves. In both the Old and New Testaments, uh, man-stealing um, and enslavement were explicitly forbidden in Exodus 21 and in 1 Timothy 1 in the New Testament. And then, of course, anyone who looks at the life of Jesus would, would simply not come away with realizing, like, there's no way that a racist, castist, kinist idea could be supported by this Jesus of the Bible, right. right? In Jesus, you have a man who confronted every caste system of his day, every form of discrimination. Sure and so here's, here's my point. Like, any, any white Christian using the Bible to justify racism uh, was not using the Bible, they were grossly misusing yeah. it, which is why they knew that, which is why they produced slave Bibles that took out a majority of the mm -hmm. Old Testaments because they knew that the, the greatest threat to racism um, was true biblical Christianity. Okay. And of course, we see that in the abolition movements, which most of which were led by strong Christians. Uh, I'll stop there. That yeah. was powerful. powerful.
Now, before I get into my next question with you, we have a, a lot of amazing questions. We could just pick your brain all day. So but I'll try to <laughs> jump straight into it. But I, I do want to um, add to what you just said. Now, with the Melanation Healing Project, we feel like no matter when it comes to black and brown people, religion period has some form or part to play in uh, uh, subjugating uh, black and brown bodies. Um, everything you say is fact. You know, um, yeah. we don't want to exempt other religions because they have their own part to play, you know, in how they treat their people and how they use their religion to treat their people. Because when George Floyd, the uh, you know, the, the incident with the George Floyd situation broke out, it was people from every creed, nationality and religion. Yeah speaking out and saying, hey, yeah. we are being misused too. And I thought it was so interesting. And because, and the reason why I want to say that is because I don't want other religions to take that back seat. Like, oh, they're talking about Christians, not us. <laughs> but it, yeah. it is everywhere. Yeah. And my husband is um, Syrian and Palestinian. And so we have a uh, robust uh, relationship and we have interesting conversations about how we see that reflected throughout every religion and it's it, there, you know, and we focus here in America because we live here. And because as, as yeah. long as I'm living here, I, and because I consider myself a follower of Jesus Christ, I focus on Christianity, but make no mistake, right. it's everywhere. Yes. Um, right. I appreciate that. Now in the episode, um, the same episode, uh, Conversations with Oprah, I loved it. I listened to it like several times. And in the same episode, you said that the conversation about racism and becoming anti-racist needs to come back to a place where Dr. Kendi begins in his book, which was where you said, addressing where racism comes from. Then you went on to say that racism actually comes from an abuse of power. Um, so can you explain a little bit how the abuse of power fuels racism? Yeah, um, well, let's, can we, can we start that question with an exercise? <laughs> All right, I like exercises. Okay, so uh, I need I need group participation here. Okay, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you each 10 seconds, and in those 10 seconds, I want you to come up with your definition of power. Mm. So ready, go. You have White 10 seconds. Influence. What is your definition of power? Access. White men. <laughs> You first, Aaron. I said white men. <laughs> that was the first thing that came to mind. Sorry, guys. <laughs> For me, it's influence. Influence. Okay. Uh, resources. Yeah. What do you think, Tasia? Oh, I said. Um, I said access. Access. Yeah. Okay. So even even from you know this small this small uh, sample size, we had like kind of four different definitions. Uh, one of them was somewhat <laughs> negative, which I think is common. <laughs> Uh, and Sorry. I agree where maybe, uh, no, that's, that's fair. I think a lot of people, when they hear power, they think in, in negative terms. And then the other three of you, you know, you kind of maybe um, describe different uh, types of power or how power can be used. Uh, but I think even there, we didn't really get to what is like, what is the root of power? Like, what is it? Like, you know, what, when we say power, what is it? And so even just with this small exercise, take note that we each have different definitions and think of it differently. And so power is this force that I think we all take for granted uh, and we don't take time to understand or discern what it is, right? We, we take for granted that it exists, uh, but we don't take time to discern or understand it. So uh, I'll say it like this, power is like a hammer. Um, if I know what a hammer is for, I can use it to do some pretty amazing things, right? I can build a house for people. I can even build maybe beautiful works of art to put on display for other people to see. Um, but if I don't know what a hammer is or what it is for, I might be inclined to use it like a weapon 
or to use it to threaten other people or even hurt somebody else. And so power is a lot like that. Uh, when we know what it's for, uh, we can use it to do some pretty amazing things. But when we don't know what it's for, we're inclined to misuse and abuse it. So let me try and give you a few quick principles of power that I hope are helpful. And then uh, maybe we can flip and see how, like when we abuse these principles, it fuels something like racism very easily. And let me just say like to Tasia's point a minute ago, you know, I'm speaking, um, you know, obviously as a Christian pastor on this and, uh, but I, I absolutely wanna have a conversation where everyone's welcome at the table. And so I'm hoping that I'm speaking in a way that is uh, welcoming to people of any creed, any background, any religion. Um, but obviously I'm drawing my principles here, you know, from my Christian faith. And, but I'm hoping that these principles could largely be agreed on by just about anybody. Okay, so um, let me just say that. So here's, here's a few principles that I use uh, for thinking through power. Uh, first, I define power as simply a, the ability to make something of the world. Okay, it's the ability to make something of the world. And I'm getting that definition primarily from two, two sources. Uh, one is a, a man named Andy Crouch, who has done some amazing work on studying power. And then another is uh, by a woman named Dr. Diane Langberg, who's just, uh, she's amazing. Uh, she's written a couple of great books on this and they're so good. I would highly recommend uh, her work. So power is simply the ability to make something meaningful out of the world. And then a few principles of power that I, that I further define it is number one, um, power comes from God. So it means that any power we have is a borrowed resource. It doesn't belong to us. Power doesn't belong to us. Okay. Uh, second, uh, to be human is to be someone who's entrusted with power. So that this is what Christians mean when we say that human beings are made in the image of God. It means that God has entrusted us with a kind of power to use and to steward over all of creation. Um, third, uh, when, when used rightly, power multiplies itself. So power is not a zero sum transaction. Like if I give you some power, I somehow lose power, right? Like it's not like addition and subtraction. Uh, power is a multiplication equation, right? So when God gave power to people, it's not like he lost power. When Jesus gave power to his followers, he didn't lose power. He multiplied it. Right. And I think the same thing is true when power is used rightly. We shouldn't see it as like, if I give you some, I lose some, but I'm multiplying yes. it to the yes. world. Um, and then finally, and I, I could say more, but finally, I think we can say that power, when used rightly, it's meant to seek the good of those who receive it. It's meant to lead to flourishing, particularly for those who do not have power and agency for um, themselves. Power ought to flow toward those who are in positions of risk or or vulnerability to seek to lift them up out of uh, maybe the, the oppression or the vulnerable places they find themselves in. And so you see this exactly in, in, in who Jesus is and what he did. Uh, the scriptures say that he emptied himself, even to the point of death, uh, humbling himself to serve and to save the world. And we see it in who he chose to hang out with. Uh, he chose to hang out with those who had the least amount of power. He hung out with women and lepers and Gentiles and children and tax collectors and all the social outcasts, <laughs> prostitutes, exactly. He used his power to exalt the oppressed. And so I think in the person of Jesus, we see that power doesn't come uh, to oppress and make demands. Uh, power comes to wash feet and lay down its life. And so uh, from there, we, I think we have a great model of what power is and what it's for. And so power when used rightly is very, very good. But then I think if you take each of these principles and twist it to the negative side, you can see how power can be abused very easily to fuel something like racism. Wow. So, you know, so instead of um, 
uh, instead of seeing power as a borrowed resource from God, we think that we create it, that it's for us, that it's meant to serve us. We think power belongs to us. And so we start to hold on to it. We hoard it for ourselves. We think that if we give power away, we'll lose it. Or even worse, we think that power is something to gain by mm. taking it from other people. And so I think this is where abuse and victimization comes in because abuse that manifests itself in, in racism sees other people as a means to, to gain power from myself, to take power from other people. And I think that's exactly uh, Ibram Kendi's point in his work, um, that in the case of white interests, uh, the abuse of power manifested itself in racist policy, which was perfect for protecting those interests, perfect for protecting the status quo uh, and for protecting white power. So you really couldn't think of a more perfectly crafted, sinful abuse of power than racism, which essentially tells people that they're less than human, that they're not deserving of power, and, and it strips them. And so I think all of that is hopefully that um, uh, gives you some idea of how power when abused. I mean, it's, racism is like the perfect twisting of power to, mm -hmm. to abuse others. So when we look at the mental health crisis, health um disparities and housing economic disparities, the opioid and drug crisis, um, education systems, wealth gaps, et cetera. How do you see racism playing a role in these things, which some of them you did touch on too? Yeah. Well, uh, there's, there's so many threads we could pull on with that. I mean, you named like eight threads just in that question. And of course they're all interconnected. <laughs> And again, if you're paying attention, once you start to have eyes to see um, racial injustice in our society, you start to see it everywhere. So even it was either earlier this week or last week, uh, a new study came out to show that in 2020, uh, the life expectancy for Americans dropped by a full year, but it was even more for people of color. And why was it even more for people of color? Because people of color are the ones on the front lines, uh, often working the jobs that that couldn't be work from home and things like that. And so COVID has by and large affected minority communities much more than uh, white communities. And so we even see right there, systemic injustice played out in this last year from, from COVID and from, from the pandemic. So you can see this you know, everywhere. And so we could tug on education more. We could tug on you know, the school to prison pipeline, which Michelle Alexander talks about uh, some in the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration and things like that. Uh, I think one thread that maybe is connected to a lot of these that we could tug on just real quick would be housing and like the wealth gap, right? And this is um, Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law is an amazing book. And like, if you're going to read one book on systemic injustice, I think The Color of Law is maybe the best one because it's just concrete with examples of uh, systemic injustice. But let's just tug on that thread just for a second. So we know that uh, for as long as slavery existed, um, you know, African-Americans in our country were largely unable to have property of their, of their own. Slavery ends. Uh, there was promised restitution during Reconstruction that never, that never came to fruition. So that didn't happen. Then you have an entire population that had been oppressed, almost had no money or property, entering into society woefully behind the white population. And as time progressed into the 20th century, uh, black citizens were kept out of white communities, which were often where the better homes were. They were closer to, to jobs. Uh, and so they were kept out of those communities through exclusive, exclusive uh, housing, housing contracts, which said that black citizens could not move into those houses or into those neighborhoods. Then you have the GI Bill after World War II, uh, which disproportionately gave uh, funding to white uh, soldiers coming home 
uh, and not to black families. So black families, black soldiers were kept from their benefits that they were, were rightfully theirs uh, from the GI Bill. So then you have you know white families getting another boost and black families being kept down, uh, held down again. Then you have the growing practice of redlining in our country in the 20th century, which devalued homes and neighborhoods uh, because black or other minority families lived in those neighborhoods, kept black or minority uh, families from moving into white neighborhoods. And then you have you know, transportation laws and you have toxic plants being built in, in minority communities. And all of this uh, is, it leads to a, a huge housing inequality in our country, right? Well, okay. Home ownership is the number one way that wealth is accrued and passed down from generation to generation in our country, right? Home ownership is the number one way that wealth is accrued and passed down. And so you, you have now historic practices that come all the way into recent history. Uh, the subprime uh, mortgage crisis from 2008, 2009, there's plenty of research showing uh, that minority communities were targeted more uh, than, uh, than white, white families. And that's, I mean, that's only like 10 years ago. Right. And so you have this huge wealth gap, which is largely due to these housing, uh, housing uh, injustices. And so you look today and I think on average, if I have my figures right, uh, black families in the United States have one tenth of the wealth of white families in the United States. One tenth of the wealth of white families. Well, how did that happen? largely through a lot of housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, and then this is related to, it's related to health, it's related to education, it's related to all these other things. So that's just like one thread that we could tug on. So now we're asking black citizens, yeah, we're asking black citizens and black families to basically, from a wealth perspective, we're asking them to run a 400 yard relay with a 390 right, yard right. penalty. You know, like starting so far You are behind, giving so. really, really, really good statistics. I'm, you know, in the public um, health uh, sector and mental health sector. And so, you know, I, I'm going to have to take a look at some of that stuff that you just stated. So we have about less than 20 minutes to go. And so I have a few more um, really good questions I need to ask you because you also have a website where you write blogs. Okay. So if you can quickly answer yeah. these next three questions, mm -hmm. I, I, I would love to get an answer from what an, um, a blog post that you wrote about um, uh, power. So in 2019, you wrote a blog about power and authority. Now, m you kind of already went over this, okay? And you already explained, um, I believe, the differences between the two. Now, can you explain the differences um, if you want to further elab elaborate? But really my main point, um, as, when I read the, the, the post is how you connected how Jesus used um, authority and power and how we should um, govern it. So because you are a Christ follower, yeah. how do you believe Jesus used power and authority in biblical times and how are we supposed to model this? Yeah, well, uh, just real quick, you know, again, authority is another one of these words that we probably would all have different definitions for. So I define authority essentially um, as power having the legitimate, uh, it's legitimate power, right? If you're a strong, a strong person, right? If you, you could have a lot of, exert a lot of physical force, you might think, therefore, it's my job to enforce the law in our country because I, I, can, I can exert my force. Well, no, not unless you are in a legitimate role of authority, right? So not unless you're a police officer or some sort of other legitimate authority that can exercise that kind of power over other citizens, right? So just because you have power doesn't mean you have a legitimate capacity, or in other words, doesn't mean you have the authority uh, to use that power.
power. So that, that would maybe be like kind of illustration of the difference between the two. So what does that mean? You know, thinking about Jesus, I mean, he not only had all power, but being the creator of, of the world, uh, he had the authority to use it. And yet, once again, what we see in Christ is, you know, that he uses all of his power, all of his authority uh, to come and to seek and to save those who are without power, those who are oppressed, those who um, have been victimized. And, and so uh, when we see what he used power and authority for, and then in his death and resurrection, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, right? That's what we call the Great Commission. So he says, all authority has been given to me, and now I'm giving it to you, right? So go. Uh, it's therefore the, 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 the charge of anyone who says they follow Christ to go out into the world to use power and authority uh, the way that the way that Jesus did. And if I could just I think Dr. King is going to say say this better um, than than I ever could. And so Dr. King uh, once said, uh, you know, Jesus is eternally right. And he said, you know, human history is replete with the violence of societies that have not listened. And so he's like, he says, hopefully we in this century will will finally okay. will finally listen to him. You know, and I think that's that's my my call, especially to Christians, is we should listen to this one who we say that we follow, right? Who uses Absolutely. his power and authority in this Thank way. Thank you so much so, for that, Pastor Ben. Okay, yeah. so leading into the next uh, segment, we just want to focus on solutions. We don't like to leave our listeners without hope, okay? Because this is a very heavy topic for us. But our goal is to create community dialogue. So we and so part of that is providing solutions mm -hmm. for how to move forward. Do you have any solutions for all of this and you know power, you know, and things like that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think. It starts with what y'all are doing here, um, and I love I love the work that y'all are doing. You know, in these this podcast, uh, Melanation, Toledo Monster, Social Justice, <laughs> Social Justice. Um, you know, and I listened to y'all on the first podcast, and just hearing you all talk about how important it is to provide a safe space where you can be vulnerable, where you can make mistakes, where you can say the wrong thing, but grace will be extended to you because you you're in a in a, a space where you're all in agreement of we're trying to work towards a common goal here. Right. And I think you need to be in those sorts of environments uh, to to know that it's safe to be vulnerable and things like that. And so I think it has to start with with those sorts of groups, those sorts of environments, those sorts of um, safe spaces. And uh, I think when you have a group like that, where you're in a environment where you, you're all working towards this common goal, then you can start to talk about what does that concretely look like for us to move forward. But until you have that space, until you have um that ability to talk with other people, you're not really going to get the ball and the, rolling. And the grace and the patience because we're all different and learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd absolutely. Erin, Yeah, thoughts? I'd love to add on to that. So I've been thinking about that. Um, for me, it was um, starting with myself. You know, as a white person, I have power in my whiteness as you know, n not being, there's lots of reasons that I have power within my life. And so I had to look at that, how I abuse power, because I think we all do and might be little ways, big ways, and then start looking at how I can use the power I do have to connect with others. And um, so that has been helpful in my own life, because sometimes I start to feel kind of like hopeless, like, oh, man, it's just this is so big. How can I possibly make a difference? I'm just one little person, but I can make little differences with what I have. And then um, I what I would say for people who are Christians listening to this, 
to talk to their church leaders, talk to their church members, start small yeah. with discussions, book clubs, and then start planning bigger actions. Um, you know, I, however that could be in your community, whatever your strength is, and then work on that. So basically the same thing as what you do with your individual self, just applying it to your larger organization. And Ben, I bet you have something wow. to add on to that, right? No, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> Me? I wanted- <laughs> well, I think, you know, and this is something I wanted to, um, I know we're running out of time, uh, but if I can just piggyback on Aaron's point, I absolutely agree with her about, um, you know, whatever, whatever institution you may, you may be a part of. So that might be a religious community or a church. Uh, it might be, you might be a teacher in a school. It might be, you know, your workplace. I do think, um, so in Jamar Tisby's book, uh, how, to, how, to, um, how to Fight Racism, he gives this model of the arc of racial justice. And so arc stands for awareness, relationships, and commitment. And so on this relationship piece, starting with the relationships you have uh, in the institutions you may be a part of. And, and I think that means even addressing the leaders in whatever institution. So if it's a religious community, talking to your leaders um, and really getting a sense mm-hmm. for where do they stand on this? Is this something they even want to move forward with? And you really yes. do need to have the support of leaders in, in especially in a religious community, because here's the thing. Uh, if you if you want to come forward and start addressing racial justice more in a religious context and your leaders agree with you, then great. Now you have the support of really the organization behind you. If you try to come forward and they don't agree with you, then you're gonna you're gonna find yourself in a probably in a world of hurt. It's probably gonna be very painful for you, and it's probably going to create um, division in the organization you're a part of. And so, if 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 you're in a religious context and you want to move forward talking about racial justice, and your leaders don't agree with you, then I think you have an important decision to make: of can mm-hmm. I remain a part of this organization or not? You know, because if you if this is important to you, but not important to them and you decide to stay, it's mm-hmm. probably going to lead to conflict at some point, whether or not you try to make that happen. And so just being aware of that. But then even in other institutions, like you, you mentioned, um, if you're a teacher, you know, petition your leaders to start a a faculty discussion mm-hmm. on a book where you can start to really work through a book together to maybe have your eyes open to the needs in your school or if you're in a workplace you know, same thing, petition to have a group started where you can begin to maybe concretely address, you know, workplace dynamics or things like that. And so whatever institution you might be a part of, I think you can move forward with the relationships you have there in that institution. Absolutely. Okay. So Pastor Ben, I want to ask you, what is next for you and how can our listeners uh, follow you? Yeah. um, Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are moving forward with this work of church planting and we have been very explicit, like I said, to uh, potential um, supporters of our heart for racial injustice and addressing you know, systemic racism in our communities. And that has kind of been a natural filtering process of, of who might want to come and partner with us and be a part of the work that we're trying to do. Uh, and so we're moving into that and we're hoping sometime this year that we're going to be moving out um, in faith to begin this, this work of church planting. So uh, you can... Um, if you want to follow along with that, you can follow me on social media, Facebook. I tend to be most active on Facebook and Instagram, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to use Twitter, but like <laughs> I just can't. Twitter, like I start for like two days and then I give up, and then I like a month later I try again. Uh, but I am on Twitter, and then uh, I do have a, a newsletter you can follow to um, 
to, to see, you know, see the work that we're doing and ways to support us or pray for us and, and so on. So that is awesome. Thank yeah. you for that information, Pastor Ben. Once again, I want to be sensitive to this topic. We do have a little bit of time left to just um, one thing to do favorite things just to shift the energy. OK, so, yeah, because I know that these are intense, heavy topics. So um, with that, Pastor Ben, let me ask you this. What is your favorite song? Favorite song? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that's very specific. I know. <laughs> anything if you can't think of okay, it. Okay, yeah. so, uh, no, uh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question. All right, it was favorite song, so I'm going to answer favorite song. <laughs> this is my perfectionist in me, okay? This is my perfectionist. I have to answer the question. Uh, I'm an Enneagram one. Uh, I, I would just say um, my first thought is the Hamilton soundtrack. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I'm a huge, huge Hamilton fan. Uh, and I'm, then the, the song is blanking on me at the end. Are any of you Hamilton fans? Uh, but the one at the end of the, the one at the end of the, um, of the musical where uh, uh, Hamilton and his wife reconcile oh, yeah. is just I like this beautiful that. song. And uh -huh. it just like makes me, it just makes me cry every time, you know, I listen to it. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with that. Ooh, nice. I love it. Well, All right, Aaron? I, I would probably go with Change by Blind Melon. <laughs> Ooh. It's old Ooh, school. I know okay. I'm dating myself, but That's, that is the word for that eclectic. That's an eclectic <laughs> yeah. choice. That's very yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just I don't know if that's the right word, but that's nice. <laughs> All right, you guys. Um, so I do want to take this time out and thank our listeners and our guests again. Uh, thank you for spending time with us and allowing us into your space. Um, I want you to know that you guys can follow us on iTunes, Google, uh, Spotify, Breaker, uh, Stitcher. Overcast, Pocket Cast, Castbox. There's a lot of a lot of cast going on here, um, and Radio Public as well. Um, join us next week for episode three with Erin Martin, certified nurse, midwife, and founder of um, Stylus, Excuse me, um, Health and Wellness. Um, for any questions or comments or information on our next healing session, please email us at melanationhealingproject at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on social media at Melanation Healing Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, you can also find more information on the beautiful Erin Marsh um, and Toledo Moms for Social Justice on their Twitter and Instagram account at Toledo Moms for Social Justice. Thank you again, everyone. We really appreciate you. Mm -hmm.